Good morning again. So we are in a series called Messy Church, um, and uh, it's uh, really a study of First and Second Corinthians and Paul um, having to deal with the, the church in Corinth. Um, and we know because we've been going through it now for a bit that Paul really had a struggle there. Um, and it was a struggle really with two extremes, right? On one side, we had the Judaizers. And the Judaizers wanted everybody to still follow the old Jewish ways, were concerned about laws on circumcision and eating the proper meats and things being properly prepared. Um, and then on the other side, you had the, the Gentile Christians that were like, yeah, thanks, you could keep the circumcision thing. And meanwhile, we'll keep our idols and, um, and uh, we don't, you know, we'll, do, uh, you know, we'll do communion our own way, etc. And Paul's trying to deal with this going back and forth, and he's trying to get them to understand, no, no, that's, you need to stay to the central theme of what it means to be Christians. And as we went through 1 Corinthians, we saw that the book was primarily about what it means to be a Christian and how to behave as a Christian. And as we go into 2 Corinthians, now we're looking at more of the ministry of Christianity. What is it as Christians uh, that we are supposed to do uh, amongst ourselves and amongst the, the world that we live in? Um, today's message I called the transformation of the heart, and it's really that part of being Christian that moves you forward. Um, it's that heart that's willing to be transformed, that heart that's willing to listen to the Holy Spirit and to be transformed um, into what Christ wants you to be, to be more and more Christ-like through the help of the Holy Spirit. So the, um, we know that Paul here, as we're going through Second Corinthians, Paul has had to deal with a... Um, some disobedience in church, people, be, a person behaving inappropriately, tried to go down and deal with it himself, didn't go so well, left, went back, wrote a letter, um, and things are finally getting a little more um, squared away in Corinth. And then now we have these Judaizers coming back with this sort of back to Moses type of, of uh, theology, which is again counter to what Paul had taught. Uh, on top of that, they're challenging Paul's authority. Uh, they're saying, you know, Paul doesn't, he's not really an apostle. He's just making these claims on his own. Um, and that he is, uh, righteousness, righteousness. What does it mean to have a transformed heart? What does that look like? What does a transformed heart look like? Now, to get in the context of where we're going to go in the third chapter, I'm going to jump back to a couple of verses uh, at the end of the second chapter, which sort of sets the stage for where we go in this third chapter. So starting in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, For we are a fragrance, of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to the one in aroma from death to death and an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. 
So now it's interesting that the, the transition he makes here, he says, okay, on one side, we have the message of Christ, which is the aroma of death to some people. Now, I don't know if you've ever had the aroma of death, but it's pretty nasty. Um, I was going to bring an example. When Sean and I, I used to go on ride-alongs with Sean all the time, Sean Salloway. I just loved it. And the best time to go was typically a Friday night in the summertime. All sorts of fun things happened. Well, we got called to this, to this trailer park, and um, this guy was, had been missing for a while, and so the brother went down to this trailer park to see if, where he was and looked through the window of the trailer and could only see his feet. Now, he decided not to do anything but called the police so that we could come find out. We, we the police, I was just with Sean, could find out what was going on. So they got down, called the fire department, and they broke open that trailer. And that guy had been in there five days, and the landlord had turned off the power because he hadn't seen him around and thought he was just wasting electricity. That is the aroma of death. And I mean, whoo. So you can imagine the Jewish believers who don't accept Christ as Messiah, the message of Jesus has the aroma of death. Right? For us, it's a fragrance of life. Think of that contrast between these two. And Paul's going to go through that as we go into chapter 3 to emphasize that distinction between the old law and death and the new law and life, the smell of death, the smell, the fragrance of life. Um, Vivid picture. Um, So the key phrase here is who is adequate for these things? Well, what things is he talking about? Well, Paul is addressing the ability to bring the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so going forth, he makes this really interesting comparison, right? So there are those who claim adequacy based on their own ability. Um, and then there's those that claim that their adequacy comes from Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. There's those who claim that they can rest on the laws written on stone tablets. And there's those, no, no, I follow the truth written on my heart by the Holy Spirit. And again, to those who claim self-sufficiency, that hang on to the law on the stone tablets, Rome of death. So beginning chapter 3, verse 1, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need as some letters of commendation to you and or from you? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Holy Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So, Paul is facing these challengers that came up from Jerusalem that are presenting these letters of of recommendation. Um, And we really don't know who signed the letters, right? So they came from Jerusalem. It's possible it could be James, Peter, or someone else. It's unlikely that it's James or Peter or one of the established Christian churches in Jerusalem because they know and they have accepted Paul as the apostle of the Gentiles. So it's unlikely they would be challenging him. 
So more than likely, these letters are coming from the same group of Judaizers that were challenging the church of Jerusalem, as are now challenging Paul in Corinth, and in fact, in many places that Paul um, had his ministry. So these challengers are presenting themselves as authorities justified by these letters um, and presenting a message that's counter to the one Paul had delivered, um, and again, also attacking his authority as an apostle. And we see that particularly Paul has a profound response to this challenge. He says, the evidence of my authority is the results that can be seen in the changed lives of the body of believers at Corinth. Right? Verse 2, again, it says, You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. What a powerful statement he's making. I don't need letters saying this and that. I just point to the people that I'm an apostle to. I point to changed lives. I point to transformed hearts. You want to believe on whether or not I have the authority from God? Look at the evidence. It's in the body of believers at the Corinth church. Now, again, they're challenging Paul because, of course, he claimed to be an apostle because he received his apostleship from Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, this bright, shining, glorious light that came upon him and established him as an apostle. And his life changed from persecutor to self-sacrificing apostle as evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit on a humble and contrite heart. His success as an evangelist rests on the gifts given to him by God and manifested through the Holy Spirit. I don't need letters. Just look at the work that's done. Right? We think of that. Said, how do you know you're a, a mason? Well, look at the wall I built. It's going to tell you whether I'm a mason or not. Right? That's what Paul's saying. Hey, I'm an apostle. Look at the fruit. So again, that question, who's adequate for these things? In verse 5, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. So the adequacy of Christians come from God, evangelized, or evidenced rather, in a transformed heart. So the evidence of a transformed heart are obedience to God, a desire and sincere effort to be Christ-like, a heart that listens and responds to the guidance from the Holy Spirit, and the faithful work of evangelism. He said, that's how you can measure. And Paul compares that evidence to their evidence. Some new group of teachers with recommendation letters from heretofore unknown sources teaching a message that is counter to Paul. They have no authority. They're just peddlers of a past covenant and should be thrown out. What a strong statement. All right, yeah, these guys, throw them out. They're peddlers of a past covenant. So now Paul's going to explain that we as Christians have the better covenant. We have the new covenant. The old covenant was built upon the law and resulted in death. The new covenant is built upon the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ and results in eternal life. The old covenant was temporary 
and is now gone versus the new covenant, which is permanent and will continue without end. Above all, the new covenant brings the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, imputed righteousness of a resurrected Jesus Christ, and a transformed heart. That transition, that opening of the heart to the truth. Verse 7. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stone came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, having such hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, we who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end and what was fading away. But their minds were hardened, and until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is roofed in Christ. Now, when Moses spent time with God, he would come down from the mountain and his face would glow. Now, I can't imagine what it was like to be Moses, to be able to go up to the mountain, holy ground, and spend time with God. I mean, um, I, I, you know, that, that whole burning bush, that whole relationship that Moses, and when you think of folks like Moses and Elijah and uh, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, others that spent time with God, actually conversed with God. That's an amazing thing. Um, I, I, part of me said, man, I would love to do that. Part of me thinks that would be scary. <laughs> you know, like that mercy me song. What am I going to do when I first see God? You know, I'm like, oh, you know. <laughs> That's going to be amazing, right? Oh, anyway, so, so anyway, Moses was come down from the mountain, and he'd have to wear a veil over his face because he was just shining so much that people couldn't look at him. We see the story about that in, in Exodus 34, um, in verses uh, 29 through 35. So it came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain, and that Moses did not know about, or did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. Verse 33, when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel what he had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, and the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him again. I mean, can you imagine? Here he is, he's coming down, he's or goes time with God, comes back out, his face is shining, and he brings a direct message to the people. Literally carries the glory of God with him. 
as like a, I don't know if you ever seen the um, we used to have these these um, like stone things and you'd shine light on them and then you in the darkness they would glow for a while but that glowing would go away it would over time it would fade right where kids have these things so here with Moses he would get that glory and that glory would just cover it with a veil and then it finally would fade away and Paul is making this comparison here because Moses showed the glory of God temporarily when he spends time with God. And Moses brought the law to the people on stone tablets. But that law on stone tablets condemned because nobody could keep up with it. No one could follow it. So that law brought death. Versus us, we have the imputed righteousness that we have from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which imparts a permanent glory to believers. Now, we have full glory when we pass and, and we go in the resurrection, but we carry a glory of God now. We carry that glory with us. We shine that glory, and it's a permanent glory. It doesn't fade away. And we carry the law, but we carry it on our hearts. Ours is not an obedience because of the law. Ours is obedience because of the faith and loving God that we follow. And that permanent glory gives us boldness to speak of Christ and salvation. Paul was a bold evangelist because he was given that glory, that spirit of faithfulness and strength from God. We don't have to hide our faces. We're not afraid to bring forth the glory, just as Paul wasn't afraid. Unfortunately, the veiled glory in the stone hearts of the people of the Old Covenant is existing again of this group of people that are coming into the Corinth church in this letter. And we see it today in the world we live in. There are people whose hearts are hardened against the word. They are unwilling to accept Jesus Christ. It's the word of death to them because they're unwilling. Verse 15, But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror of the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. The people of the Old Covenant have their hearts covered. They are unwilling to accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah and therefore are spiritually dead. Only as Jews are persuaded from the Old Testament to the Messiah, Jesus, and turn to him, will that veil be removed and the glory seen. Whenever a person turns his life over to Jesus Christ, that veil is removed and the Holy Spirit indwells. And the transforming work of the Spirit brings us closer to being Christ-like. That continuous process of growing, growing in transformation. So what does it mean to have a transformed heart? I like the way that it's 
these verses, um, 2 Corinthians three sixteen to 18 in the message are written. And it says, Whenever though they turn their face, God as Moses did, God removes a veil, and there they are, face to face. They suddenly recognize that God is a living, personal presence, not a piece of chiseled stone. And when God is personally present, a living spirit, that old constricting legislation is recognizable as obsolete. We are free of it, all of us. Nothing between us and God. Our faces shining with the brightness of his face. And so we are transfigured, much like the Messiah, our lives gradually becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters our life and we become like him. What a beautiful picture. That transforming work of the Holy Spirit. That that veil gets dropped. And I know for me, as you all know, I, I came to the Lord late in life. And, and immediately, my life changed. There was things I knew I couldn't do anymore. That veil was gone and the truth was there. I became convicted of the law. I knew what I had to do and what I had to stop doing. And that process doesn't end. It continues on. Now, if you don't know Jesus today, you can't. He is there. He is waiting for you. Turn your heart and your life over to him. Acknowledge that you're a sinner and that you need him. And you can have forgiveness and righteousness and a life of transformation. You too will shine with ever-increasing glory. Father, we just thank you that we have you indwelt in us. We thank you for the guidance that you give us wisdom, and we just pray, Lord, to help us open our minds, listen to your word, listen to your voice, give our lives day by day, over and over, growing ever increasingly to be like you. Again, we just thank you for all that you do in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.